This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, Hawaii Docs. I'm Catherine Cruz. Randy Roth is no stranger to our airwaves. He authored a book, The Price of Paradise, and hosted a show with the same name on HPR1. He was also one of the authors of the essay Broken Trusts, which led to an upheaval at the powerful Bishop Estate Trust, now known simply as Kamehameha Schools. Under threat of losing their charitable tax status, it could no longer be business as usual. Roth is a law professor emeritus at the University of Hawaii. He penned a paper for the Hawaii Law Journal that was published to close out 2023. It addresses some high-profile corruption cases, the Bishop Estate case, and the conviction of Honolulu Police Chief uh, Louis K. Aloha and his deputy prosecutor wife, Catherine. Both are now serving time behind bars for their part in a conspiracy to frame Catherine's uncle, Gerard Puana. Here's Roth on what needs to change. I think the media mostly focused on criminal corruption, and there's certainly been a lot of that in past years, most recently the Kealoha group of crimes. And I wanted to focus on what I call non-criminal corruption, the go-along-to-get-along bystanders, if you will, who engage in, in willful blindness or some other form of intentional ignorance because they want to go along to get along. They don't want to upset people in a position of power or people who have friends in a position of power. And that's what enables and and facilitates and ultimately protects the criminal wrongdoers. So what I tried to do was focus on two handles that everybody thinks about the crimes that were involved in involving the Kealohas and and earlier um, the Bishop Estate controversy, And I focused on, for example, in the Bishop Estate controversy, the role of the justices, which certainly they didn't commit any crimes, or at least I don't see where they committed any crimes. And yet, I believe I laid out in the article a pretty good case for them having engaged in a great deal of what I would call non-criminal corruption. And then more importantly to me, I focused on the organizations that are pretty much run by lawyers that are supposed to be providing uh, oversight, if you will, to members of the judiciary to to hold accountable a judge or a justice uh, who's engaged in anything unethical, or they don't use the term, but non-criminal corruption. And um, just one after another, the organizations that are there to provide accountability. The Bar Association, the lawyers as a a group, are supposed to be serving as a watchdog of sorts on the judiciary. And yet, evidently, uh, I don't know of any other compelling explanation for it, evidently, lawyers individually and collectively were afraid to point out what was really obvious at the time, that there was a great deal of uh, wrongdoing violations of the law, part of that Bishop State controversy. According to 60 Minutes, when they did the retrospective, they said that the trustees which had been appointed by the Supreme Court justices had turned uh, Princess Pauahi's charitable trust into a candy store for the state's political establishment. And the Kealoha series of cases, again, we see these watchdog organizations that apparently uh, didn't see what, in hindsight, uh, they should have seen. And if they did see it, um, they pretended not to see it, or at least um, that would seem to be the evidence. So more than anything, I wanted to put a spotlight on what I refer to as non-criminal corruption, uh, which is very different than criminal corruption. But without non-criminal corruption, uh, there would be a lot less criminal corruption because, again, the non-criminal corruption, it enables, facilitates, and eventually protects the criminal wrongdoers. I just am thinking of these cases. These are community leaders, uh, folks who many people looked up to and respected. And yet, you know, at the end of the day, there was broken trust. There was a, you know, public trust and they betrayed it. The the convictions were just stunning. And it took an outsider to bring it to light. Well, that's the thing is, and I explained in my article the various factors that I think make it understandable why there would be more non-criminal corruption in in Hawaii than than in other places. Um, That doesn't justify it, but I I think if we take a step back and look at what's unique to Hawaii, um, it's hardly surprising that we have this um, 
stronger tendency, a more prevalent tendency to go along to get along than what generally uh, you find in, in other places. Um, but recognizing that, that there are reasons for it and tolerating it are two completely different things. And hopefully uh, my article would cause some people to say, you know what, um, we need individually and certainly when we've got the, the protection of organizations like the Bar Association, for example, or the Judicial Selection Commission or the uh, Judicial Conduct Commission, um, there are times when you just need to stand up to power uh, even when there is the threat of, of adverse consequences. Um, you know, you, you cross the wrong people in a lot of other places, and you may, in order to thrive, you may need to actually make a physical move to another place. But almost without exception, there are other places that are within at least a, a half-hour drive of, of Tutu and, and, you know, where your roots are. In Hawaii, you cross the wrong people, and it affects your ability to thrive. It may affect your ability to simply survive financially uh, in Hawaii. And now you're talking about thousands of miles and, and a very expensive airplane ride for you and the kids, the grandkids, whatever. For me, somebody with relatively uh, shallow roots in Hawaii, to point out non-criminal corruption isn't as risky an affair as would be for somebody with deep roots. And again, in the article, I, I list that, our distance, as just one of about seven or eight different factors that I believe are, are unique to Hawaii and, and help us at least understand why we have a bigger problem with non-criminal corruption than a lot of other places. You'd like to think that these watchdog groups are doing that, you know, watching, and yet they have blind spots. Well, they have blind spots, and the question is whether they're really blind or whether it's, um, you know, what we call willfully blind, that, that they've um, conveniently avoided seeing or at least processing in their own minds having seen or maybe uh, simply uh, keeping quiet about what they had seen and knew that they saw. You know, we're, we're all human, and the human condition is such that, especially when we're talking about the interests of our loved ones, there's a natural tendency to to avoid doing something that's going to adversely affect the people that you care about. And in Hawaii, an individual may be untouchable. They may be a tenured professor at uh, at the university or, or for some other reason have a form of, of protection. But I got relatives, I got kids, and I've got all sorts of stakeholders, if you will. And so people in Hawaii have to be willing to sacrifice their own interests and, unfortunately, maybe the interests of others that they care about, and that can be a pretty big price to pay. So it's, it's understandable when groups that are, you know, I call them watchdog groups, groups like the um, uh, Commission on Judicial Conduct or the Judicial Election Commission or the Committee on Judicial Independence and Accountability, these are folks that if, if they're not willing to make those take those kinds of risks, and they, they should turn down the opportunity to serve on such prestigious boards. I don't expect Joe Sinison from, you know, out on the street that sees something. I, I don't expect nearly as much from them as I expect from one of these, I call them establishment insiders, that get appointed to these prestigious boards and then proceed to not see or pretend not to see uh, evidence of wrongdoing. Yeah, and you've got to be able to step up and be uncomfortable to say something. Exactly. And let's be realistic. At the time that you'd have to step up and say something, you don't know how it's going to turn out. Uh, that's Randy Roth, author of a piece in the Hawaii Bar Journal entitled Public Corruption in the Land of Aloha. We'll continue our conversation with Roth after a short break. Support for HPR comes from Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with courses such as art, film, history, and gardening. Classes begin January 22nd. More by searching O-L-L-I-U-H-M. 
Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Ron Pevney, author of Conscious Living, Conscious Aging. And next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how conscious eldering can help us to embrace and savor our next chapter. Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from SMS Research. For over 60 years, providing market research, public opinion surveys, and social and economic impact studies to Hawaii businesses and organizations. Online at smshawaii.com. See nothing, hear nothing, say nothing. That's the upshot-up conversation we had with Randy Roth, who penned a paper for the Hawaii Bar Journal hiding, highlighting public corruption cases and what's often a reluctance to rock the boat and address institutional corruption. Let's get back to our interview. You know, the, the Kealohas, for example, if it hadn't been for the extremely good lawyering job that Catherine Kealohas you know, the lawyer for her uncle, who had been framed, who was put on trial for having stolen the mailbox of his niece and, and her husband, the, the police chief. If it, the uncle's lawyer had not done a spectacular lawyering job in representing that uncle, to me it's almost like world record quality of lawyering. If, if client comes in and he doesn't know his client and the client says, I've been accused of this serious crime and and they've got a, a video and, and they've got the police chief says, yep, it's me. And and they've got other people who say it's me. And describing the situation that is, as it appeared at that time, the lawyer, um, Alexander Silbert, who has since written the book Mailbox Conspiracy, which is an absolutely great book. If Alexander had done a typical lawyering job, the uncle would be in prison and the Kealohas would still be on the job right now. There weren't, I believe, ever going to be whistleblowers from inside the police department or inside the prosecutor's office, I believe, but for a, a really, really outstanding lawyering job by Alexander Silbert, I think Cass Kealoha would still be in the prosecutor's office today. Yeah, And yeah. her husband would still be the, the police chief today. And that's a little sobering, and it helps, I think, people to understand why there weren't any whistleblowers in the police department or prosecutor's office, because there's just no guarantee that you're going to have a happy ending like we have in this case. And I call this a happy ending because the KLO has got convicted and went to prison. But that was anything but a certainty when um, Alexander you know, did his outstanding lawyering job. Yeah, Ali Silver did a good job. And it's not over. You know, we've got uh, the former city prosecutor, you know, his trial's coming up. You have the city's top lawyer, the corporation counsel, Donna Leong, Max Sword from the police commission, Roy Amamiya from the managing director's office. Those folks are, are awaiting trial. Uh, and supposedly another shoe may drop you know, uh, in the public corruption case, you know, there at the legislature, you know, we've got the two uh, already in jail, Senator Kalani English and uh, former House Representative Ty Cullen. It's very sobering, I guess, as we start 2024, yeah. just to be aware of what's out there and, and what could be coming. When you mention the two legislators, it, it's a, a little bit sobering to realize that they weren't under investigation. It was the investigation of the fellow on Maui that my understanding is that they had a wiretap on his phone. And fortunately, in terms of catching the bad guys, those legislators called in soliciting bribes. Had they not called in, had they been, you know, just waiting to, um, you know, for another time or another person to ask for a bribe or whatever. My point is, when you look back at the circumstances of how the various wrongdoers on these criminal corruption cases, how they got caught. Uh, in each case, it almost seems like there's a, 
an element of luck, and that makes me wonder how many times is there uh, an absence of luck. A lawyer in Alexander Silver who does a normal job as opposed to a really, really uh, almost unbelievably effective job of, of lawyering, or or the wiretap uh, doesn't uh, doesn't catch somebody who's not already suspected of, of some kind of wrongdoing. Yeah, and then, you know, we did see the whole uh, line of employees from the Department of Planning and Permitting and the corruption in that department and the payoffs, the bribery. It, it was systemic in that case. Yeah, I mean, the fact that it involves so many, and I'm not sure, as I recall, it was you know more than just a couple. To me, that suggests that more people than just the ones who were convicted of the crime knew or had reason to 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 believe that there was um, there was a level of corruption. Maybe they weren't lawyers. Maybe they didn't know it was criminal corruption, but clearly some type of wrongdoing. And yet, maybe there there were whistleblowers, and and that has just not come to light. Uh, but the impression I have is over a number of years there was. Uh, an absence of whistleblowers from inside that office, which, um, again, would, would hardly be shocking, but it's disappointing. And so what do you want to leave our listeners with? Well, I would like to say that there's something that the people in charge can do to make corruption go away. And, and certainly the Foley Commission, I think, is making some good recommendations for changes in the law and that sort of thing. So I don't want to you know, minimize too much the job of others to fix this corruption problem. But I think at the end of the day, it really comes down to each of us as individuals and as individuals recognize that we're human and and, and we're not on a higher moral level necessarily than, than other people who've engaged in what I call willful blindness or other forms of non-criminal corruption. And if we each just determine that we're going to um, do the best we can to speak up, if we see something that isn't right, and we're in a position uh, inside the Department of Finding and Permitting or whatever, we're in a position to point to specific evidence. I think if individually we say, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to take a chance uh, when circumstances are such that either. It's me or nobody. In other words, if not me, who? If not now, when? And if on an individual level enough of us kind of resolve to rise to the occasion in that way, I think the state of Hawaii will be far better off. All right. Something to think about as we start this new year. But thank you so much, Randy Roth. Okie dokie. Bye-bye. Appreciate your time. That was Randy Roth, who wrote a piece for the Hawaii Bar Journal to highlight recent instances of institutional corruption. We'll have links to that article on the conversation page of our website later today. Prepare to be transported. An upcoming theater production is about to take you places. HBR's Cassie Ordonio here with the latest on the culture and art scene. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so what's out there? We have this upcoming play that's coming soon on March 22nd of this year. It's called Nothing Micro About Micronesia. And the name speaks for itself. Micronesia is Oceania's western region comprising of more than 2,000 islands. But this play is kind of just more talking about the culture and the history of Micronesia and also those who are in the diaspora. Um, we have some uh, play writers who are actually from here, Leilani Chan and Ofa Salpang, who were inspired by these stories about the Micronesians that are here in Hawaii. And speaking with Ova Salpang, he's a co-artistic director of Tiara Productions, born and raised in Hawaii, now in LA. And for him and his partner, Leilani Chan, this is an intersection of social justice and the arts. We're from Hawaii, 
and I know that for sure. And so it's like, how do we part of our journey as leaders in the arts field, because we have become leaders in the theater world, is to uplift Pacifica artists and Pacifica voices. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that for us, we were very passionate about. And so that's what led us to finding a way to uplift stories from Hawaii. And so we were interrogating that for ourselves, like, why aren't there there, there many um, plays that are presented on the continent about Hawaii? And so when we came back to Hawaii and came back to Kalihi and realized what was going on in terms of the influx of Micronesians here, the change in the environment and the people, it really gave us an opportunity to, as artists, explore, question, So Nothing Micro about Micronesia, it covers themes as a sense of belonging, cultural adaptation, and also dives into very sensitive topics like bias against Micronesians in Hawaii in particular, the prison pipeline, and the shooting of I Remember Psychap that happened in 2020-2021. And the play wants to also explore why Micronesians are here, some that are coming from the Kofi nations like the Federated States of Micronesia, the Marshall Islands, Palau, but even like outside of the Kofi nations, they're exploring you know, folks from Guam who also, you know, U.S. citizens that come to the continental U.S. or even Hawaii, Commonwealth of Mariana Islands and other parts of Micronesia that come here to the U.S. And Teada Productions, it's a nomadic theater of color rooted in stories of immigrants and refugees. And the company has been operating for 25 years so Leilani Chan and Ova Saopeng was inspired by these community stories, and this is what led to the play, and the plot of the play was actually really interesting. There's two Micronesian boys. One is Chukis that was born in Chuk. The other one is Marshallese and Hawaiian, born and raised in Hawaii, very indulged in Hawaiian culture, the other Micronesian culture. They get into a fight, and then they end up in the principal's office. And so the Chukis boy, Auntie, comes in, and she's mad at the boys. And so to solve the issue, she snaps the fingers, and there's kind of like this artistic realism. They magically end up in Micronesia, specifically Chuk. Oh, I love that. It's a great (laughs) idea. Wow. Can't wait to see it. Yeah, and these boys are kind of just forced to learn from each other, and right now, um, the casting of the play is still being finalized, and the actors are receiving training boot camps, like in the play Masters of the Currents. There is nothing micro about Micronesia. We have big families, we have big minds, and we have big hearts. Micronesia is a term some European explorer assigned to us on a map, but our people are more than just dots on a map. We've been given the big responsibility to steward the Pacific Ocean, the largest body of water on the planet Earth. Micronesia makes over 2,000 islands that span the Pacific. It is bigger than the U.S. continent. There is nothing micro about us! And the, the play that was just um, playing just now, it also covers bias and discrimination of Micronesia, and that was kind of left as a cliffhanger for the upcoming play. One thing though, Soso. Yes? Don't wear that shower curtain to school. Oh, that's so! Shower curtain? He's talking about your skirt. <laughs> no! My grandma made this for me before I left our island! It tells our family story! I have to wear it so I can take her here to school! Just don't do it if you don't want to get beat up. And another thing, Soso? Try working on your English. My suggestion only speak English and never your island language. I mean, it is the only way to learn English fluently. And get good grades like Eva. Thanks, Alonso. You're welcome. Anyway, so so I know you're going to do great, okay? I'll see you at school. Bye! And I got to meet up with the boys at the court, so shoot! Get ants! No worry, Beef Curry! Beef Curry? So you can kind of hear, like, the training that they get. And these, some of these actors, they don't even have um, professional background, but they get trained for it. So there's going to be a next kind of saga of this play, um, just focusing on these boys and 
kind of them coming to a realization they have more in common than they thought. And this play will premiere at the Honolulu Theater for Youth on March 22nd at 7 p.m. There will be three showings. So also Saturday, March 30 at 4 p.m. Sunday, April 7th at 2 p.m. And there will be 200 seats available. Tickets are about $15, $30, depending. Um, there's a sale going on right now. Uh, they can go to the Honolulu Theater of Youth um, website to purchase those tickets. Okay, yeah, it sounds really interesting. And, and uh, uh, But a limited run, so people should make plans now. Um, hopefully they'll be traveling too. They said they may, the last play they traveled to Guam, the U.S. continent, and also parts of Hawaii as well. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much. We'll look out for it. Thank you. We've been talking to HPR's Cassie Ordonio. Check out her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. This week on Science Friday, as NASA prepares to visit Mars, we need to better understand how the body and mind change in space. There's isolation and confinement. There's the microgravity environment itself, and our scientists are taking all that into account. Plus, as popular science closes shop, a look into the state of science journalism, all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering a Master of Accounting program. More information online at scheidler.hawaii.edu. There's a new kid in the candy aisle. After raising more than a million dollars in funding, best friends Bella Hughes and Samira Nico developed a line of healthy, fruit-flavored sour gummy candy that drew inspiration from their Iranian heritage and their childhood growing up here in Hawaii. Better Sour launched last May in the L.A. retail market with help from local investors, and now the gummies are coming to Hawaii markets this month. The Conversations with Lillian Song sat down with Hughes and Nico in our studio this week. The Iranian or broader Middle Eastern flavors that we're currently celebrating in one of our SKUs are pomegranate, apricot, and plum. You can find these flavors all across our savory, mostly savory and sour dishes, but also some sweet. So what we're doing about our sour is really making candy more inclusive, more flavorful, more exciting with the flavors that we grew up with and we know are absolutely delicious. Review those six flavors you carry. That's three each in two different bags. Yes. So what are in industry bags? terms, we call them SKUs, but two different bags. And one bag, the one Samira just was referencing, is a nod to our Iranian-American heritage and just greater flavors from the Middle East. It's a pink bag for all those listeners who are going to be looking for this one. And that's the one that has the pomegranate apricot plum. Then there's a green bag. And this one really is an homage to our childhood in Hawaii. You've got calamansi, ume, and guava. Both bags are a single serving and they are 1.8 ounces with only 60 calories and three grams of sugar. And really important for us, I mean, we grew up going to farmer's markets before they were trendy. This is in the late 80s, early 90s. Our parents were total down to earth, Kukua Market customers. It was all about creating something effortlessly healthy, very, very clean. It tastes like an indulgence, but really, really natural product. Um, And again, a super nice low sugar content. I think for Samira and I, what we really love is that 
Gummy candy is truly something global. So we're taking a very familiar form factor. You find gummies in Germany. You find them in Taiwan. You find them across the United States. You find them here in Hawaii. And we're taking something that everyone's familiar with. It's really a global commodity, but we're imbuing it with flavors from our heritage, our story, but also it complements this rising trend that you've been seeing over the last few years in consumer packaged goods, in natural, better-for-you products of global flavors, of heritage-rich brands and stories. Growing up, we didn't like the candy on the market. We felt that, especially when you're looking at sour candy, it was very gimmicky where it would burn your tongue off in the gummy set. And then it was almost sickeningly sweet. And we really wanted to capture that pleasant tartness that we grew up enjoying in fresh or dried fruits. And I think most listeners here in Hawaii can probably relate. Yeah, I would add to that that we want when folks eat our candy to really have it remind them of the fruits and fruit-derived snacks that they grew up with or currently are enjoying, not necessarily the other candy that they're eating. You know, you bite into our calamansi. It does taste like a calamansi. It just perhaps is a little more indulgent and in fun gummy form. You guys bring your strengths to the table. So, Samira, you come from a legal background. Mm -hmm. I know Bella from the arts. First launched the Honolulu Biennial, now Triennial. People may also recognize you through Shaka Tea. Mm -hmm. As women entrepreneurs, founders, can you share insight on the process? Because you guys have really gone from that idea to physical product in the aisle. What has that process been like? I will say this as a repeat founder, I was so intimidated originally by the world of business. I thought you needed to go get an MBA, you had to have an amazing financial acumen. Math was my worst subject in high school, true story. Um, so I think what I learned on this journey is you really need a passion. Being an entrepreneur means you're gonna think about your business 20 hours a day. Any listener who's thinking of going into business who's might feel intimidated, if you've got a big passion to bring something to life and it doesn't exist yet, grit, persistence, and that love of your product, you know, for Samira and I and, and sharing a story really, really has been the guiding light for us. Yeah, I agree with everything that Bella said. I feel like I cheated a little bit coming to this, partnering with Bella, because she's had this incredible and professional career as an entrepreneur. But what I can tell from my experience in the short time I've been doing this is truly it is the grit and having kind of a holistic approach to what you're doing. It's not just gonna be numbers, it's not just gonna be branding, not just the product. You have to be involved in all aspects of the business and failure is inevitable in steps of it or maybe the whole endeavor, but that shouldn't stop someone. We've had failures even in our short journey and always I can say we have learned from it and it's ultimately benefited us in some way. Well, I'm curious because you guys are besties and with Failures, how did you work through that? Or can you just share a quick story? Like what sort of failure maybe comes to mind right now that we can all learn from? Oh, I'm thinking about the, the using natural plant dyes and colors. So with our first run of our product, our calamansi did not look green. And all the colors in the pink bag basically looked the same. So it was really, really hard to visually, we were out there sampling and demoing, and there's just a lot of learning when you're making a product, learning about exactly, especially if you're working with dyes that derive truly from plants, nothing artificial or fake, Um, but just rolling with it kind of I would say we made some jokes on trade show floors of like, it's a very natural product. And then um, quickly like pivoting, working with our co-packer. Yeah, always finding a positive angle. um, That is very key, which I think Bella is just exceptional at. And people always say, you know, what I actually have heard in the past is don't go into business with your friends, especially when challenging times hit. It could really break not just the business, but the friendship. But what I can say is going into business with your lifelong best friend when you've had every single fight in the book from pulling each other's hair to having silent treatments, writing angry letters, When you hit these bumps in the road, we know how to work it out. We've done this before. So 
any bump in the road we've had, and I'm sure more in the future, we know each other's flow and we kind of work off of each other and the creative process to figure it out. There's no one I trust emotionally more to be a co-founder with than my best friend of 36 years. There's just such a level of trust. Being an entrepreneur can be very messy and very ugly because there's so many uncertain challenges. Even if you've done it before, gummy candy is very different than my experience in herbal iced tea. And there's just a lot of learnings. And to have someone that you can go through stressful times with, but have such a deep level of emotional intimacy and trust, um, I say is truly one of our strengths. I've never been happier than being in business with my best friend. I agree. That's so sweet that you, you share that lifetime bond, that emotional trust with each other. And my mind is actually pinging back to what you were saying about how in one bag all the colors look the same and calamansi actually wasn't green. But at this point, yes, we fixed we fixed that. But I remember for a hot minute we could have either freaked out at our first trade show or we could really see the positive, make a joke out of it and um, just roll with the punches and there's so many incidents of this happening. I mean, truly, it happens weekly. That's just the first one that popped in my mind, and that's being a startup. Mm. I will say the Calamansi, we took a big risk. We had our first production run. It was ready three days before when we were launching at the major trade show in the industry, and I remember trying and opening a bag for the first time before driving to the trade show and nearly having a heart attack. But it worked out. It, you know, We were able to sell it. It ended up being a top-selling product in our early accounts. And we just figured out how to fix the issue for the mm. next time around. Mm. And we even won an award. There's a group called Startup CPG. And our pomegranate apricot plum, with that first production run where the colors looked, again, quite similar, won Best New Sweet. We were joking with them. We said it should be Best New Sour. Maybe sour will be a category. Good point. Good point. And since we are radio, and as you have better sour here in the studio, this would be a great time to do tasting in an auditory way. Oh, how fun. Bust okay. them out. All right. So Samira's holding the pink bag. Bella's got the green bag. Want to hear? Hear all that crunch? That's the green bag. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Bella, did you have the sound of the zipper opening? Oh, I don't know. I mean, that was great. It's very enthusiastic. Okay, where's that calamansi? Right over here. See that nice green? Let's see. Oh, Hmm? got it. I don't know if you are a person who likes to bite into their candy or who loves to enjoy it. We actually learned a lot discussing this with our husbands about gummy suckers. My (laughs) husband is a gummy sucker. I did not know that was a thing. Because my husband, myself, and Samira are gummy chewers. So there's a whole new category of just how people. How you can enjoy gummies. Because I will admit, I tend to enjoy on the long term. Oh, so you're also a gummy sucker. Good. This is pleasant. What? It's got a little sweet, but I get the tart. So I also really appreciated how you're telling me on the back of each bag, you share your brand story. Samira, share that with us. Our name says it all. We love sour. We live for that flavorful, mouthwatering tang. That's why we've created these sour gummies using global flavors from the Middle East to the Asia Pacific. We're Iranian-American best friends raised in Hawaii here to unleash sour power. Bella and Samira. <laughs> Life is better sour. Uh, that was Better Sour founders Samira Nico and Bella Hughes talking with HPR's Lillian Song. Look for the hot pink or bright green bags at Foodland Down to Earth and KTA. Meet the lifelong besties at a free tasting event tonight at Island Boy in Kaimuki from 5 to 7 p.m. We'll share links on the conversation page of our website later today.
Support for the conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Honolulu Waldorf School and Nohea Gallery. This Saturday, HPR presents the Barton Nascala Duo live at the Atherton Studio. Watch this cello and piano duo perform works by Dvorak, Mahler, and Clara Schumann alongside newer pieces celebrating identity through music. For tickets and more information, visit hprtickets.org, sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. When you think of classical music instruments, the violin or the cello are probably the first that come to mind. But not for Tommy Morrison. For him, it's the bassoon. The New Jersey native has been playing the woodwind instrument for over 20 years. He's also been the principal bassoonist for the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra since uh, 2017. He'll be playing a concert in our Atherton Performing Arts studio later this month as part of the 2024 Hawaii Classical Performance Series. The Conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Morrison in our studio to talk about the underappreciated bassoon. I've been playing the bassoon since I was 10 years old, so that would put it at 21 years now. Was it something that was handed to you, or did you pick it out? That's a great question. I started playing the flute when I was seven, Mm -hmm. so that was my kind of basis, starting with music. And then uh, when I was in fifth grade, so I was three years later, somehow, whether it was a recommendation of a band director or a teacher or maybe just my parents, they kind of said, hey, why don't you try something different? Mm -hmm. Bassoon is, you know loosely related to the flute in the same family of instruments. So I tried it and it really kind of resonated with me kind of right away. So what has kept you playing the bassoon all these years? Aside from what seems like a perfect fit for you, is there other things about the instrument that just continues to draw you to it? Oh, totally. I think there's, there's a couple main things. One is the people who play the bassoon themselves. It's a really diverse group of people drawn to this instrument. So I've really made friends who I probably wouldn't have encountered otherwise while playing this instrument and going through college and grad school. It's just been a huge learning experience and sharing with people who have a similar passion. It's really amazing. But I also think there's a lot in common with the human voice with the bassoon. It kind of is both a bass voice and a tenor voice and strong in both. So there's a lot of versatility with the instrument that you can explore, which makes it great as an orchestral instrument, but also as a solo instrument. I noticed that when I pulled up some videos of some performances that you've done. For those that are listening that don't know what a bassoon looks like or sounds like, can you describe its appearance? Can you kind of describe a little bit more about how it sounds? Yeah. The bassoon is four and a half feet tall, essentially cut out of maple wood. It's covered in silver. There's a lot of key work on the bassoon, kind of extending your fingers past the point of where they can actually reach. So... It's a really big instrument. It's always visible in the orchestra because you can kind of see the top third of the instrument sticking above everyone else's heads. So it's it's very distinct and sort of exotic looking because it's a little bit less known than a lot of the other woodwind instruments. And you're saying it's four feet tall, so it sounds like something that you have to hold to your side as opposed to like a sax, which stays right in front of you. Does the bassoon end up kind of on the side of you? Yeah, so it sits on your right leg when you play sitting down, and it basically leans diagonal across your body, and you have what is called a bocal, which is a silver tube that extends from the body of the instrument, which then you connect the double reed to, which bassoon is a double reed family member. Okay. So yeah, you'll see the instrument sort of cross the body and usually attached to a strap that sits on a chair, because it's a... 15, 20 pound instrument, pretty heavy. Oh, okay, it's heavy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Very dense. Yeah. So, yeah, it helps to uh, balance it on the leg and it really involves all 10 fingers. Yeah. What do you know about the history of the instrument? How old is it? How long has it been around? Uh, the bassoon's actually one of the oldest members of the Woodwind family. It has origins sort of in the 17th century. You see it kind of mentioned in France kind of coming up and. It was developed over the years, so you see it in Baroque music, where you might not see the clarinet quite yet, and certainly not the saxophone. So the bassoon has gone through a series of transformations. If you looked at a bassoon from the 1700s, it would look drastically different from the bassoon that I play, but it's really just kind of a modernization thing where they figure things out acoustically, physically, so that 
it essentially works as best as it can. The two videos that I watched of you playing, they were on the NPR Music Live Sessions website. There were some performances that you did for KING in Seattle. Can you talk about the two pieces that you performed? The Debussy piece, Girl with the Flaxen Hair, is the English translation, is a beautiful piano prelude, which was transcribed for the bassoon and piano accompaniment by my college professor, Benjamin Kamens at Rice University. It's just an amazing melodic piece that really demands a lot of the bassoonist and it's just one of my favorite pieces overall and to play it on the bassoon is just a different flavor than on the piano. And the other piece is by Maurice Ravel, piece en forme de habanera, and that was originally for voice and piano and it's sort of been co-opted by almost every instrument just because it's so great as music itself. So just like I said, the bassoon is pretty much a bass voice yeah. getting into the tenor as well. And so it really translates quite nicely and it's played quite often at this point. The bassoon has such a nice kind of calming sound, I guess I would describe it. And I have limited experience with it. And after watching those videos, the sound sort of kind of reminded me of like a movie score that would play during a time where like characters were making their way across a desert or something like that. that that's kind of what it reminded me <laughs> of. I read that Smokey Robinson's Tears of a Clown features the bassoon. Are there other well-known classical works or film scores or songs that feature the bassoon that we, the general public would be aware of? I feel like you might recognize it in the Sorcerer's Apprentice by Paul Dukas, which was famously included in Fantasia, the original version. It pops up in quite a few different settings, but I would say the most famous orchestral things are probably Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, which starts off with the bassoon alone in a very high register. It's very iconic and uh, quite legendary for us to play. There's a lot that features the bassoon that people might not know about. When it comes to the ideal like physical attributes to play the bassoon, I have short fat fingers, what makes it <laughs> it makes it difficult for me to hold certain chords on a guitar. When it comes to playing the bassoon, what are kind of like the ideal physical attributes that you'd want to have? There is an element of physicality to play the bassoon, but I've seen people thrive playing the bassoon who are a foot shorter than me, mm -hmm. and also a foot taller than me. How tall are you? I'm 5'10". 5'10", okay. So maybe not a foot taller than me, but yeah. Yeah. there aren't that many people, you know, so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe they're playing basketball instead. Right. <laughs> um, but I would say it takes a lot of lung power and, and wind to, to play this instrument, but I would say it's accessible to a lot of different body types. It really involves a lot of different fingerings and keywork, which really incorporates all 10 fingers mm -hmm. instead of maybe nine or eight excluding thumbs on some of the other woodwind instruments. So, you know, having having a long reach or just dexterity in, in your hands, and I think that would help. But with good practice and good work, I think a lot of different body types and types of people can play the instrument well. It sounds like if you have good dexterity, maybe some strong lungs, outside of that, you could be tall, short, 
you could be any body type and it's pretty universal. You could play the bassoon. Yeah, I think everyone figures out their own own way of doing yeah. it. And maybe the worst thing about it for a smaller person would be carrying around the case. Right. It's kind of heavy, but right. <laughs> that's okay. You know? Yeah, yeah. Maybe uh, maybe like golf carts, maybe there's some bassoon cases exactly. with wheels out it. Or we something. need a caddy. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. If you had a bunch of musically gifted kids standing in front of you who wanted to learn to play a classical music instrument, but didn't know which one. How would you pitch them the bassoon? I would tell this group that the bassoon is sort of a jack of all trades. You can really play these high, you know, soaring lines melodically or sort of lay the bass like the low brass and Mm -hmm. kind of fill these different roles within the orchestra. But I think my pitch would really just focus on, you know, loving the sound of the instrument. And I think young people are really engaged and sort of enamored with the look of the instrument because it's so big and there's a lot of silver, very shiny. But I think, you know, like any choice in life, you want to go towards something you like initially and then, you know, figure out more about it as, as you go on. I feel like if kids get exposed to it more, they'd understand just how cool of an instrument it really is. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's one of the uh, unsung heroes of the orchestra. You know, it's, it's sort of an instrument that kids get pitched last when, when they're picking instruments when they're young, partly because of the size factor where, you know, it's, it's heavy, it's big, you have to deal with the double reed. So a lot of people start playing a different woodwind instrument, like myself, I play the flute, clarinet, saxophone. Those are very common first instruments where you get a basis for the technique of being a wind player. And then you can apply those same skills that you've already learned to a new instrument, which, you know, has its own quirks for sure. It's uh, just an awesome thing. Tommy Morrison, you'll be playing the Atherton Theater on January 27th. That's a Saturday. Anything that you want to share with the audience? It's going to be an awesome show. I'm going to be collaborating with Dr. Tyler Ramos on piano. He's a fellow faculty member at the Punahou Music School. And we're super excited to present a program which kind of runs the gamut of kind of classical music, but also it's music that I love and I also haven't really gotten a chance to perform. So, you know, I think there'll be a lot of energy in the room. It's going to be fun. I would highly recommend coming and check it out. Fun being the (laughs) key word there. Exactly. Awesome. Tommy Morrison, thanks so much for your time today. Really enjoyed talking. Thank you, Russell. That was bassoonist Tommy Morrison talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. Our Hawaii Classical Performance Series kicks off tomorrow with the Barden Niskala duo performing in our Atherton Art Studio. Morrison will close out the four-week series on Saturday, January 27th. We'll have a link to tickets on the conversation page of our website after the show. Well, that is it for this Aloha Friday. Coming next week, we talk tourism and economic recovery for Maui. Call our talkback line and leave some comments. That's 808-792-8217 or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Look for our archive shows on our website or wherever you tune in for podcasts. Our program is produced by Russell Subiono, Lillian Song, and Savannah Harriman-Pote. The Backyard Quiz theme written for us by John DeMello. Our theme music, courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.